Let's continue studying in the book of Philippians this morning. Again, we'll go back to chapter 1. And what I'm going to do this morning is uh, something that I've done a few times over the years. As I was studying this week, it occurred to me, maybe not to you, maybe you are more, I want to say this tongue-in-cheek, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, and you can take more than I can out of one. But as I was studying this, I thought, man, this is an awful lot for just one Sunday morning. So what I've done is I've got an A and a B now. We've got chapter 1, verses 18 through 26A, which is today, and we'll just go down through 21, and then next week we'll pick up B, and we'll start in verse 22 and finish this passage of Scripture. Well, last week we studied chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And in that passage, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Jesus. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. Now some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and others do it from goodwill. The latter do it because they love me, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, basically? So what should I do? How should I respond to this? Well, I respond only that in every way, whether pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And that's the main thing. And that's why even sitting in prison with all of this oppression and struggles and um, persecution that he's going through, he's rejoicing because Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And if you recall, the Apostle Paul is writing back to this church at Philippi to do two things, to inform them of his circumstances, but also to encourage them in their church life and their daily walk as believers and followers of Christ. As Mr. Johnson says, Paul was in a sea of troubles. If you can get that mental picture. He says, and I quote, as the apostle writes from Rome to his Christian friends in Philippi, in his current circumstances, he has found himself in a sea of troubles. He's shackled to a soldier, confined to house arrest, and on the near horizon looms a more daunting threat that he really doesn't know what's going to happen. He has been accused of fomenting civil unrest. That charge always got the attention of the Roman authorities. So Paul, invoking his right as a Roman citizen, has appealed to Caesar so that his case can be decided. Now he awaits, and I was thinking as I was just meditating on this earlier today, one of the greatest problems we face as Christians is just waiting. Isn't it? You've prayed, you've asked the Lord, you're struggling, you want something to happen, and you just wait. And as you read through the Psalms, you'll often read, Lord, how long? When's this going to come to an end? When am I going to get a resolution to this? I don't know about you, but that's one of my greatest trials, just waiting. That's why the Bible says, wait on the Lord, but it also says in another place, wait patiently. You know, there is a difference, don't you? <laughs> you got to wait because there ain't nothing you can do about it. That's just okay. But to wait patiently and to submit this thing to the Lord... Paul's in that situation here as he awaits the emperor's answer. As his thoughts in our text imply, the possible outcomes are really two ends of the pendulum. Either he will be vindicated and released, 
or he will be condemned to die and put to death. In chapter 1 and verse 18, concerning his inconvenient present to the unseen, what he doesn't know about, but imminent future, tying present and future together, he has still one theme. He knows what he's in now. He doesn't know what he's going to get into, but it does not matter. He is going to rejoice in the Lord. Since the effect of his current imprisonment that Christ is being proclaimed, he says, I rejoice in that. And as he looks ahead to the pending outcome of his legal appeal, he still can say, and if you'll notice as we get into the text in verse 18, he says, I will continue to rejoice. We stopped at the end of 18a last week. He says, well, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, period. And I'm going to continue to rejoice. The question to me was, as I looked at that, well, Paul, why are you going to continue to rejoice, even not exactly knowing what's going to happen in the future? Johnson goes on to say, now we can grasp the truth that will set Paul free from fear as he faced an unseen but imminent life or death future if we will. It is in order to show others that the truth that has freed him from the fear of the future, Paul opens his heart to them. This is called one of the most warm and endearing epistles of the Apostle Paul. He's inviting his Philippian friends and us as well to observe his inner struggles with this life or death possibility in the future for two reasons, to calm them about their concern for his well-being, but perhaps more importantly, to show them how being captivated by Christ's preeminence colors a person's reaction to suffering and relationship to others. Rachel, I could not have requested or found a better song than the one you ended with today. That's providential. Christ you're all. <laughs> and if Paul were here this morning, he would say, he'd probably lift his hands because, you know, he was that kind of guy. Amen. Why, why can I rejoice in this prison? Why can I rejoice at the prospect that I don't know what's going to happen? Christ is all. What a motto. What a motto. The Philippian believers, by the way, and we'll see this as we go through the book, they're also suffering at the present time when Paul writes to them. They're suffering at the hands of opponents whose intimidations are prone to frighten them. Their joy is at risk. We'll find that at the end of chapter 1. Moreover, outside pressures have a way of dividing a group of people. Have you ever noticed that? Both families and churches as well. Outside pressures and persecution sometimes have the effect of dividing people. Well, they're struggling with that because one of his themes in this book is you need to stay unified in your walk with Christ. Paul wants them, as he says in verse 27, and we'll get to that, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul shows how he himself is processing the possibilities of an uncertain future to guide their joy and their humility as they relate one to another. Finally, Johnson says, Paul's joy has its source in his commitment to one supreme goal, and what is that? Christ is all. His certainty of reaching his destination casts a distinctive light on the two options before him, the two possibilities, ongoing life or impending death. And listen, for Paul, it wasn't a, ch a choice of e either one, one is bad and one is good. For, cho for Paul, it was a choice of two goods. 
It was good and gooder. Or gooder and gooderer. Paul, Paul said, I can't lose. It's a win-win situation. They take my life, I'm going to be with Jesus. If I stay here, I've got his presence and I'm still going to have his joy. What an outlook. What a perspective. Have you had a rough week? Has there been some things happening that's stolen your joy? I'm first in line this morning. Some really difficult things this last week that had a tendency to steal my joy. So when I get into this text, I'm saying, well, Ed, before you say this to anybody else, why don't you preach it to yourself? And I've had to this week. I truly have. This is, this is real, meaty, down-to-earth, where the rubber meets the road stuff, Paul, folks. This is real truth from a real man who's struggling with real problems, but he's got a real solution in Christ Jesus. He is rejoicing, not, listen, not in spite of, but through and in his struggles and imprisonment. So what we're going to look at today is the end of verse 18 through verse 21. I'll not read the whole text. Let me read that if I may. Beginning in verse 18, the last part of it says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this situation will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body or my life, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Previous section, it's the proclamation of Christ that brings him joy. Jesus Christ is still center stage in this text. So, the question comes to my mind, Paul, why do you rejoice? Why are you rejoicing? And why will you keep on rejoicing? Well, he tells us in this text some more about why he will. Basically, my circumstances are going to change. They will. I won't be in this change forever. One thing's going to happen or another, but that doesn't matter. I'm still going to rejoice. Now, in verses 19 and 20, there is a key word I'd like to leave with you. It's on your outline if you haven't, and it's the word delivered or deliverance or rescue. Another word that we use in Christian circles is salvation. I'm going to be saved. Now, what's he talking about? Well, first of all, he says, I know it's going to happen. Now, that word know in the Greek language is knowing with certainty. He, he knows it's going to happen. And the word delivered means rescued or saved. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Paul is not saying, I know that I'm going to be delivered from the penalty of sin. That is, I'm, I'm going to stay a Christian. He's already experienced that. And he's also not saying that when I get home to heaven, I will be delivered from the wrath of God. When I stand before God's judgment throne, I know that I'll be delivered from the wrath of God. He's not referring to that. Now, both of those things are true. Remember, salvation has three tenses. I can say, I was saved. I was born again by the Spirit of God. I can say I am now being saved from the power of sin. And I also can say that one day I will be delivered from the presence of sin. But Paul's not talking about the dimension of salvation. He's talking about something else. And if you have a cross-reference system in your Bible, you may see there that this is almost a direct quote from Job chapter 13. And if you go back and look at verses 15 and 16, you'll get an idea of what Job's talking about, and that reflects upon what Paul is saying here. Actually, verse 20 gives to us 
a full-orbed illumination of what it means that Paul is talking about. What is he saying? It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This clarifies what this deliverance is, what it looks like. What is it? Paul is saying he will not be ashamed. He will exercise full courage to honor Christ in his body. That's pretty good confidence. That's a powerful stand. Now, you remember back in Romans chapter 6, because we are dead to sin, he says, surrender, present, or yield your members as instruments of righteousness. And I think it's um, James Montgomery Boyce who helped me in this. What is he talking about members? Well, I think he's talking about six things. Our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hands, and our feet. Those are the members of our bodies. When temptation comes to lead us from following the Lord, it is usually through one of those channels or one of those avenues that he works. And so it is really a wonderful exercise, perhaps a daily exercise, to just stop and say, Lord, today... I surrender my mind to you. I surrender my ears to you for what I hear. I surrender my eyes to you for what I see. I surrender my tongue to you for what I say. I surrender my hands to you for what's going to happen with those. I surrender my feet to you. May all of these members be only focused in the direction of righteousness because if we're honest with ourselves, they can be focused for unrighteousness, can't they? Those choices will come up during the course of a day. They can be used for righteous purposes, or unrighteous purposes. Do you remember what he said in chapter 12 and verse 2? You should surrender, you should yield your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. That's the idea. Now Paul is saying that I know, I expect this to happen, that when I come before Caesar's tribunal, I am not going to be ashamed, I am going to be courageous and still honor Jesus Christ no matter what they decide. Their decision is their decision, but I'm still going to honor Christ. I am not going to abandon my Savior or my brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, how's that going to happen? It's a whole other sermon. This is the balance of Scripture. This is that problem sometimes we have from seeing it from God's perspective or from our perspective. How's it going to happen? Well, he's got the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is going to help him and enable him and give him what he wants. But the Spirit of Christ is going to do that in answer to the prayers of his brothers and sisters. That's the biblical balance. Both are necessary. We have the sovereign power of God. We have the important responsibility of Christians praying for each other. And Paul says that I know this is going to happen. You're praying for me and God's going to answer your prayer and make me stand strong when I come before my accusers. Notice he says, I eagerly expect it. It's, it's a hope, and again, that word hope has the idea of not, well, I hope it's going to happen. I ain't sure. It's a solid confidence in what God is going to do based upon God's promises and his character. So he's saying before Caesar's tribunal, whatever the legal outcome is, life or death, I expect to continue to honor Jesus Christ. I'm going to continue to display the greatness of Christ I am going to escape the embarrassment of somebody who chickens out, if I can use modern-day language. I'm not going to turn tail, put my tail between my legs like a dog and run away from Jesus. I will not be ashamed of him. There's a couple of verses in the 34th Psalm 
That's kind of the same idea of what Paul is saying here. He's going to stand courageous. He will not let down his family. This theme in Psalm 34 says this, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him or delivered him or rescued him from all his troubles. Can I make a couple of applications ere we go forward a little bit? These often are my own personal reflections. I know a pastor in Harrisburg area who put somewhat like this. And he put two words on his pulpit. And he has them taped there. And the two words are, so what? It is a reminder to him every time he opens the scriptures and seeks to teach God's word, people need to ask, and he needs answers, so what? What's it mean? What am I supposed to do with it? And so I often, as I'm studying, having heard that, reflect upon that question. So I stopped here and I asked myself, so what questions? Number one, is it my supreme passion and goal to honor and magnify Christ with my life and body? It was so easy to stand there and to sing those words, Jesus Christ is all, isn't it? It's easy. Just open your mouth and sing them. But it's not so easy each day for me to live that and to put it into practice. So I'm asking myself, what is the passion of my life? What do I want more than anything in this world? And does the fact, the reality of magnifying Christ, does that thrill me? We're not far from that place called uh, Hershey Park, are we? You know that thing that goes like this all over the place? They usually use the word thrill. I can't write on that. I would give you not only my lunch and breakfast of that day, but probably two or three days before. And I wouldn't recover for two or three days. That's the truth. But that's a thrill. Man, that's exciting. That is the epitome of joy. Does loving Jesus Christ, magnifying Christ, letting Christ be seen in my life around other people, does that really thrill me more than anything in this world? And then secondly, I added this. Will I add this request as I pray for my brothers and sisters in living legacy? I don't see you during the week. You don't see me during the week usually. And unless we don't show up next Sunday, I'm assuming we're still alive during the week. Is there a possibility? There was one last week, but is there a possibility this next week somebody in here, including myself, who's a Christian, is going to chicken out when given the opportunity to speak up for Jesus Christ? I'm going to be ashamed of him. Remember what Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. Now, if I'm honest with you this morning, I've struggled with that at times more than I want to admit. I have been ashamed. I have been a coward. I've not stood up for Christ, and I'm not facing impending death. So one of the things that's good for me to pray for you is, Lord, if they get in a situation where they're going to have to make a decision, am I going to speak up for Christ, or am I going to put this above that and, and act like a coward? Lord, help them to stay strong. Help them to stand up for Jesus Christ, whatever it costs. I would encourage us as we pray for one another to let that be a part of our request. 
You remember we studied this prayer back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 as they prayed for each other? Let this be an additional prayer request for us as we think of each other because opportunities to do that, like at work, at lunch, in places where discussions come up and there's a golden opportunity to talk about the gospel and the answer, I don't get as many chances as I would like and I don't always go through with it. But when I hear people say, well, I, I don't know why that boy killed all those kids. I have had an opportunity at times to go, I know. Yeah, I know. I haven't studied his psychological uh, history. I haven't studied his home life. I don't know what happened. I'll tell you, I know why. It's his heart. His heart, yeah. What about his heart? Well, I don't think he's a Christian. <laughs> what do we know about a person who's not a Christian in their hearts? And then I have an opportunity to share the depravity of man the sinfulness of man, but the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes. See, that's, that's an opportunity. And how many times have those been given to me and I've been afraid to say something because one of my fellow workers going to think about me? And if my boss finds out and thinks I'm a religious fanatic, I may not get that promotion or I may not get that raise. You understand what I'm saying? We need to pray for one another to be courageous, not foolish, not brash, not ridiculous, but courageous and unashamed of Christ and the gospel. Well, verse 21. The second word today I want to leave with you is not only deliverance, but the word delight. Christ is his delight. Jesus is the source and sustainer of his joy. Notice what he says, and, and I, I guess this is true. Someone said this is one of the most quoted verses, perhaps on the same par as John 3.16, or... <laughs> I was talking with a pastor the other day. He said, yeah, this woman came up to me one time. And she says, so where's this found in the Bible? God helps those who help themselves. And he said, well, ma'am, it's not. Yes, it is. I, I know it's there. He said, well, would you show it to me? So that's not a verse, by the way. But that's often quoted as a verse in the Bible. But this one is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wants Christ to be honored, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Have you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? I often teasingly say I really love to read the dead guys. I do. They had such a grasp of the character and the nature and the grace and sovereignty of God that I can learn from. Well, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor up in the northeastern part of the United States. He's the one who preached the sermon Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You ever heard of that? That's the guy. Well, in a book that I'm reading called Introverts, by the way, I confess to you this morning that I'm a card-carrying introvert, really and truly, and I'm learning why I do some of the things that I do. It's written from a pastor's perspective, so he'll be more gracious and kind to people in his church who are not jumping over the pews and always saying, love you, Jesus, and always extroverted. But it's also a reminder that some of us pastors are that way, and it's a plea for God's people sometimes to recognize that our personalities are, you know, we are a little weird. But it, in that book, though, in that book, I found this, because Jonathan Edwards probably would have been categorized as an introvert. Even after reading that sermon, I found that, wow. But listen to what he says. When we're talking about what does it mean to live is Christ, what does it mean? I quote, once, this is Edwards writing in his autobiography, once as I rode out into the woods for my health, this is 1737, having gotten off my horse in a retired place, as my common manner has been, I would take a walk for divine contemplation and prayer. 
During that time, I had a view, by faith, of course, that for me was extraordinary, and that view was of the glory of the Son of God. As mediator between God and man, I had a view of his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace appeared so calm and sweet, it appeared great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent and with an excellency great enough to swallow up all my thoughts and all my conceptions, which continued, as near as I can judge, about an hour. Kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping out loud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. I, I lie in the dust, full of Christ alone. I wanted to love him with a holy and pure love. I wanted to trust him. I wanted to live for him. I wanted to serve and follow him and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Does this sound weird? In this culture, I think it does. Would that description be anywhere near what I experience in my walk with the Lord? And do I know anyone who's like that? He says, moreover, several other times I've had such views of the same nature and it's had the same effect. When Christ becomes all in all, as we sang this morning, something to what Edward's experience will be ours. We are consumed with, now, Fox News alert, that takes time and quietness and aloneness of which many of us don't have much. But if we would take the time to meditate upon and to have communion with and fellowship with Jesus, I believe in a growing way that could be somewhat of our experience as well. So he says, I want to honor Christ by my life. Two questions. Why? Why would he want to honor Christ with his life? Well, because the love of Christ constrains him. That's what he said in 2 Corinthians. Because the strength of Christ fills him, Philippians 4.13. Because Christ has promised him that one of these days he's going to have his body transformed into the likeness of the body of Christ. God's going to do something for him in the future. And so he wants to honor Christ with his life and with his body. How will he do that? Well, I think in his attitude toward Christ. Colossians 1.18, Christ will have the preeminence. List all of my priorities of my life. Jesus Christ is numero uno. He's, the, he's at the top above anyone or anything or anyone else. Jesus Christ is preeminent. And I think, obviously, by devoting his life to serving Christ. And Paul said he not only confessed that, but he actually did. He devoted his life. Now, that does not mean that everybody in this room has got to go resign from their jobs and go out now and start being missionaries and hershing around the world, and that's the only way to serve Christ. We live for Christ each day where he leads us. Our vocations, our jobs are opportunities to live for Christ in our neighborhoods, in our communities. But the direction and the focus of my life is that Christ will have the preeminence and I will serve him in all that I do. He'll be in my thoughts. His glory will be the goal of my service. Once again, I paused here and asked myself some questions. Do I desire to magnify Christ with my life and my body? 
Am I living in a way that does that? What do I mean by that? Am I experiencing the presence? We sang about that this morning as well. Am I experiencing the presence of Christ? Am I living for Him? Who am I living for? Choices come up from what I want and what He wants. What wins? Do you remember what Jesus asked in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? When Jesus Christ says to do something, is there a time when we sit down and say, wait a minute, you sit over there, Jesus, and I'll sit over here, and we'll get a mediator, we'll arbitrate, and you give a little, I'll give a little. He's not the Lord if I do that. Am I so living as to promote the progress and joy of my brothers and sisters, his family? Do I encourage or do I discourage my brothers and sisters? Can I tell you one way that Christians discourage other Christians? By not showing up when they can. Remember Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25? We should meet together regularly for the purpose of encouraging and provoking or stirring to love and good works. We can discourage one another when we don't show up and become a part of the body and use the gifts that God has given to us and worship and serve together. And certainly I'm safe in saying that Christ has more than provided sufficient motive for us to do so. Does he not love us? A love that we can never be separated from? Has he not promised to give us strength and help when we need it? And will he not greatly bless us if we do? All of these are the motivations for Paul. They're the same thing for me and you as well, if you know the Lord. Well, Paul says, not only with my life, but I want to honor Christ with or in my death. Again, why, Paul? Why would you want to do that? Because of what death is going to mean. Look at the text. Look at verses 21 and 23. Verse 21 is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But look at verse 23. I am hard-pressed between the two. I'm going to catch 22 here, folks, he says. I'm, I'm in a vice grip. I'm not sure which to do. I've got two great decisions. I'm, I'm pressed. Which one is that? Well, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is what? What's those last two words in the ESV? Far better. How many people would say that dying as a Christian is far better? In our culture, in our society, we avoid the topic. We do everything we can to ignore it. We even use terminology that is so soft and sweet. And don't get me wrong, I understand we do that sometimes to make it more more comforting to people. But he passed on. Here's another one. He's in a better place. And there have been times when I bit my tongue. Because when he was in this place, he had no desire whatsoever for the things of God or the word of God or the people of God. He or she lived like a hellion and was rebellious as they could be. But they're in a better place. And I'm going to say to myself, well, I don't say it. There's just some things you can't say unless they ask you. No, he's in a different place. But he's not in a better place. This is the only heaven that he or she will ever have experienced. And it was pretty tough. There's hell forever. That's not a better place. We, we, we struggle with this idea of dying. By the way, Charles or John Wesley used to say about his congregation, our people die well. Think about that. 
Our, in other words, their death, generally speaking, unless it's sudden and unexpected, they die with a, with a view to the glory of God. It, yes, just yesterday, I couldn't come to the men's breakfast this morning, or yesterday morning. I, I, when I moved here in Pennsylvania, January the 1st, 1982, I pastored the Rivers Community Church in Shermansdale, Pennsylvania, and one of the stalwarts was an old farmer named Martin Luther Miller. And he and I were just good friends. He supported me and loved me. Well, Martin Luther, boy, the testimonies from his children yesterday were so, wow. But his one daughter said, you know, we prayed that he wouldn't suffer much, and we prayed that God would let him glorify him to the end. And when they shared how he was, even when he was dying, and people came to his house and he could barely breathe, in between gasping for breath, he said, please, Make sure you make sure you know Jesus, so I'll see you on the other side. For Paul and for every child of God, even if we don't understand or see it, it is going to be far better. Why? <laughs> because he's going to actually see the Lord. He's going to be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5 says he's going to live with the Lord forever. He's going to see him who he only knows now by faith. And how do you honor God with your death? By being willing to die in service to Christ and the family of God. And eventually Paul did. By being willing. Once again, I want to pause here because I do for myself at times. Number one, I have the same motives to magnify Christ by my death. I have the assurance of eternal life, and I have the assurance of being with the Lord. So I can honor him with my death. And unless the Lord returns, this is one thing we all must agree on, we are going to die. The ratio of living to dying is still one to one. It's going to happen. But my next question is, what better way to die than in a manner that magnifies Christ? What better way? So that the parting words, the final scene of family and friends is brother or sister so-and-so being carried from this hospital bed or this bed at home into the very presence of Jesus Christ. What a way to die. How can we magnify Christ today by our deaths? Well, I think it's unlikely that we're going to suffer martyrdom like persecuted Christians, although the Spirit of God checked my thoughts. Some of the school shootings that have happened over the last year, some of them were definitely targeted because they were Christians. You know the name Cassie? Yeah. So it's not at the hands of ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram. But there are evil influences in this culture that are doing what they can to kill Christians. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll have a martyr's death in that way. But I can still determine, as one person said, I would rather wear out than rust out. Now, keep the balance. It's not 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just going, 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 serving Jesus and deny, deny or neglect everything else. But what a way to go. I'm afraid that too many Christians, and I use this, retire in their service to God when they retire from their secular jobs. 
I humorously call them the Winnebago group. I've seen it happen. 65, 67, 70, they go to work the last day, get a gold watch, a party, out of here. Pastor, I don't know. We don't know how much we'll be here next year. Why? Because we bought a Winnebago. We're going to see the U.S. We're going to... Now, I'll let you deal with that. The greatest untapped resource in the body of Christ are senior citizens. They've walked with the Lord the longest. Their prayer lives should be the most effective. Their advice and counsel and wisdom should be sought. And where are they at? In a Winnebago, driving around the country just looking at stuff. Is it wrong to have a Winnebago? No. Is it wrong to take weekend trips? No. But you look at the disproportion of all this for me. I worked all this. I, Pastor, I've served Jesus in this church for 30 years. It's time for the younger people to take over. Ever heard that? Well, you might want to think that the younger people ain't got enough sense yet to do it in the right way. Nothing wrong if you're young. Don't get me wrong. But if you've, if you've faced the trials of ministry and endured the hardships of ministry, wouldn't it be great to mentor those young people and to train them and to encourage them and, and pass it on to them after a little while and then be available if they need somebody for a shoulder to cry on or try to make sense of a situation? You understand what I'm saying? And others allow the limitations of age or sickness, and I don't want to minimize this, to render, render them virtually fruitless when so much can be done. I wish I could tell you about Grandma Verde, my first church in Michigan. Grandma was 80-something, uh, and I went to visit this wonderful little old lady the first time, and I said to myself, oh boy, Lord, help me to be a great encouragement to her, because I'll bet she's really struggling. <laughs> I left that house not even touching the ground. Grandma Verde was almost virtually blind. But you know what? Grandma Verde probably witnessed more people about Jesus Christ than the average person in church. You know how she did it? The oil man would come, deliver the oil, and he would come inside and give her the little slip of paper. She said, oh, wait, wait just a minute. You see over there on that furnace, there's this little plastic thing that looks like a loaf of bread. There's some cards in there. Would you, I can't read. Would you take one out and read it to me? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever Hey, ain't that a great verse? Yeah. Do you know Jesus? Oh, what's on the other side? And he'd read that to her. And she'd share the gospel. Listen, I know that people get struggles physically, limitations, but no matter where I'm at, I can serve the Lord and keep going on until the very end when I can glorify Christ in and with my death. And sometimes people just allow the fear of dying to paralyze them. I would commend to you, and I think it's on your outline, those two verses by Paul in Acts 20 where he said, my goal is to honor Christ until I die. Let me wrap it up. D.A. Carson tells a story of a Christian. He said, and I quote, who always gave the same response when somebody asked him the numbing vocational question. So, what do you do? Invariably, he would answer, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I know about your religion, but I didn't ask you about that. I asked you, what do you do? I'm a Christian. Oh, do you mean that you're in vocational religious ministry? Nope, I'm not in vocational religious ministry. 
but I am a Christian full-time. But, but what do you do vocationally? Oh, you mean practically vocationally? Well, I'm a Christian full-time, but I pack pork to pay the expenses. Brothers and sisters, living with such a perspective as that will bring great joy to my life. And someone who's not a Christian, let me remind you of something this morning. Do these names sound familiar? Nate Saint, Roger Yadarian, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott. 1955, these five young men, all under the age of 35, gathered in Ecuador with a vision of reaching a tribe of Indians called the Alcas. The word Alca means savage that was given to them by other tribes. They lived deep in the rainforest. No one had ever presented the gospel to them. These five missionaries, all highly trained and deeply devoted to God, began praying about ways to make contact with the Alcas. In September, they began flying over an Alca village, lowering a pot containing gifts for the Indians. If you've never seen the story of Nate Saint and the, the uh, end of the spear, you ought to see this, how they got how he learned early in life as a pilot how to take a rope and a basket and so do it so that the rope and the basket would come right down on the ground from the air. Eventually, the Alkins took the gifts and replaced them with simple gifts of their own. In January 1956, the five men decided it was time to make contact in person. After much prayer, they established a base camp on a sandy beach of the Karare River. On January the 8th, 1956, about 3.30 in the afternoon, those five men were speared to death by the Indians who had mistakenly thought they'd come to hurt them. The news shocked the world. Many people wondered how young men with so much promise could, are you ready, waste their lives. And by the way, if you've not read John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, you should read it. It is a great challenge. When the journals of Jim Elliott were published several years later, they were found to contain this sentence that he wrote in college. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So was it worth it? I was only seven years old then, so I didn't, I didn't know about it until later on in life. But throughout the missionary world, the buzz was this, oh my, we'll never recruit more missionaries now. If, if they think that you're going to go to places like this and be spirited to death, they'll never do it. Are you ready for this? It seemed to be a tragedy with no redeeming purpose, but what happened? Within a few years, over a thousand missionaries went to the field as a result of those men giving their lives. Soon, the Indian Bible schools in Ecuador were filled to overflowing with native believers desiring to learn God's word. I've been to Ecuador three times, and I've met some of those men and their relatives from that situation. Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot, you know those names? Widows of Nate Saint and Jim Elliot, moved into an Alka village to begin the process of translating the Bible. Nine years later, listen, nine years later, two of the Alkas who helped kill the five missionaries had come to Christ and baptized Kathy and Steve Saint's daughter and son. A flourishing church was established among the Alkas and the other tribes. In 1995, Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint moved back among the Alcas because they invited him to come back. One pastor relates, after one of my services on a Sunday, a young couple came up to greet me. Rob and Kim Skinner had answered God's call to serve with radio station HCJB in Quito, Ecuador. Kim was crying as she spoke because the story of those five martyrs had played a big part in her life. 
When she had read the story many years ago, God planted within her heart a desire to be a missionary. Soon, she and Rob and their children will be going to the same country where those five men died. And the story goes on and on. Paul's talking here about fruit from what's going to happen. I wonder if we could talk to those men today, those five guys, and say, guys, was it worth it? What do you think they would say? I think their answer would be similar to Paul's. It would probably be only desire that we have is to magnify Christ and reach the world for him. If we do it by our life, okay. If we do it by our death, no difference. One more quick thought. You ever heard of a fellow named John Patton? Missionary to the New Hebrides? In the days when he volunteered to go, missionary ventures were greeted with disdain and opposition, in part because of the great danger that had attended to that. When he let it be known that he was going to go, an elderly gentleman warned John Patton, John, don't you know you'll be eaten by cannibals? Mr. Dixon, Patton replied, you're pretty advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, and there you'll be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring Jesus Christ, it'll make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or I'm eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise just as fair as yours in the likeness of Christ. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jesus Christ, you are all. That's what Paul's saying here. That's why he can be happy. That's why he can have joy in the midst of his trials. Folks, when it's all said and done, there's only two philosophies of life. Only two. We can say with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain, or we can say with the world, to me, to live is all about me, and to die is to lose everything. So the question to me and you today is, which is it going to be? If you've never come to know Jesus Christ and the fullness of life that's in him, I implore you, I beg you, I beseech you, be reconciled to God and trust in Jesus Christ. You will find life that will so enrapture your thoughts and your heart today and the rest of these days on this earth and take you home to heaven where you'll be with him forever. You, as someone said, you will live until you really live. Joy comes in following and serving the Son of God. May that be my passion, may that be your passion. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray.